Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. Well, I should have want to ask you twice. You can buy it in Toronto anywhere. You can buy it anywhere. anywhere. That's the, that's the yeah. thing. Making it but I mean, like, actually, it seems to me it's not really that big a step. It's actually probably take it out of there as a kid. Um, I'm serious. <laughs> so today we're almost going to do some psychology today. It's getting close. So this is sort of the precursors. This is the 19th century, so 1800s. Um, the, the knowledge of the Renaissance, which we've talked about the last couple of classes, is finally hitting the masses, the regular people. And you know, and now this isn't actually just the educated, right? I'm saying the Renaissance period, we're talking about really just the really privileged few, the, 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 the nobility, basically. Now we're getting to the point where there is more compulsory education. We're also getting to a point where there's people going to university who aren't just upper class people, but still is mostly. Um, so people had jobs during the Industrial Revolution, and that starts out. Rather than they had jobs before that, but they were ways of life. Really. Um, and kids started going to school because, and this is probably, this is partially sort of for more progressive attitude, it's also because um, kids started working in factories. And the problem was that people then found out that kids were working in factories. <laughs> so you had, you suddenly go from, see, these factories, they need more workers, they hire children. They pay them poorly, they exploit them poorly, they treat them poorly. Uh, before there was ever a SPCA, you know, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, there was the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Some of you seem to know that, so some nods there, so that's good. So the thing is, this becomes a health issue, a public issue, and the idea then is that, well, kids should actually be learning things. They should be in school. So strangely, the Industrial Revolution exploiting children actually helps children's lives in the long run. Um, so you didn't necessarily have the same job as your father. If your father made barrels, you were a barrel maker, a cooper as well, and that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Suddenly, that's not necessarily the case. You get a job at a factory. This is more true in Europe than in North America, but it was happening in North America too. So the 19th century is really a, a massive upheaval in society. Massive. Huge change. Industrial Revolution is a giant change. It's probably as big a change as us stopping being hunter-gatherers. That maybe, maybe that's a little strong, but I, it's, not that, it's not that different. So, People start thinking about all kinds of things. Because they're getting more educated. Science is advancing. Society is advancing. People literally are living better than their parents did. Which is something that never happened before. So people are getting... Uh, educations. People are learning things. And... There's this big problem that's out there, the species problem, which is basically, and it was described by a lot of people as the mystery of mysteries. The, trying to figure out why is there so much 
diversity in living things. Um, there's fossils are being discovered. Uh, people see the change in, in the flora and fauna of the, of, of the planet over time. Um, a lot of academics in the UK, especially, and a little lesser extent in mainland Europe are worried about this. A lot of them are also clergy, by the way. <clears throat> it wasn't uncommon for a university professor to also be a bishop of some sort. And this is confusing because it goes against the creation narrative in some respects. It doesn't have to, actually, but it does in many respects because if you're a more fundamentalist type person, you say, oh, God made all this stuff, and it's done. That was one view in the City Church of England uh, it wasn't the only view. The other, more sort of liberal view was, yeah, sure, there's change, but and the world's been around for a long time, etc. William Paley, who was a, a Christian apologist. A Christian apologist is someone who uses, you can also Muslim apologist, Jewish apologist, right? uses rational arguments, so reason, to argue that the tenets of their religion are correct. And he said, there's this elegant design, and therefore, there must be a design. It's the argument from design for the proof of God. That's something that people had been saying for a thousand years. So it's not like it was a new argument. But he was saying, look, well, why do we have all these species? God. Which, to most people, religious or not, is not a, uh, a satisfactory answer. You still want a mechanism, right? It's kind of like that nominal fallacy we talked about the other day. So, evolution started to come up. The idea, there were some early ideas of evolution. Um, Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, talked about how all life came from the same filaments. Now, he didn't know, nobody knew about genetics or DNA or anything like that, but that, that's, that's neat. He also did it all in the form of a poem, which is kind of different. I don't encourage you to write your honors thesis in the form of an epic poem, it won't work. <clears throat> Greatest name ever, Jean-Baptiste Pierre Antoine de Moni Chevalier de Le Mans. There he is. French people have great names, friends. Who was once a president of France, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. It's a great name. Okay, he had this idea, you know, about Lamarckism. You learned about Lamarckism before. I know I've taught some of you this stuff, so some of you don't know. So Lamarckism is this idea that use and disuse, through use and disuse, you get things either survive or don't. Okay. If and texting me, I mean, at work. Seriously. Um, right. Use and disuse, and then you get characteristics, you, and you pass on acquired characteristics. It's beautiful. 
it's wrong, but it's really nice. So use and disuse is the idea that when people say we aren't, we don't have our appendix anymore um, because we don't use it. That's not actually how evolution works. And acquired characteristics would mean if you cut off a mouse's tail, two two mice's tail, and they made it, we should have babies with tails. That's not going to work, right? But of course, remember he's doing this from stuff he's looking at. Uh, without any background. We think it's silly today, but it's actually kind of clever. And in fact, the use and disuse idea, a lot of us sort of think, who haven't really learned about evolution, think it works that way. Doesn't it? The reason our appendix is getting smaller is that the advantage it confers, which is none, because we don't, it, 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 it's vestigial, it doesn't have a function anymore, is that way by the fact that you can, it can inflame and kill you. The Mark talked about the chain of being, or what we would today call an evolutionary ladder, which again is crap, but we would, that's what he would say. Well, he wouldn't say that. He would say it was a great idea. It was my idea. So the inheritance of acquired characteristics is the key thing of Lamarckism. Lamarckism, by the way, was very popular under Stalin in the Soviet Union. Because it says that everything, that the environment does everything, and there are no real differences between individuals, which is a very lefty idea. And you can't get much more lefty than the Soviet Union. And then what ends up happening is they believe in Lamarckism, so they take wheat, put it in really cold environments, and then they try to play it in some degree. Work that great for Famine! So, Charles Darwin, it's a pretty small print, 1882, he's one of the here people say, who are your heroes? I, uh, my father is one, uh, Charles Darwin is the other, and Pierre Trudeau. That's pretty much it. My son's middle name is Darwin. Well, one of them. His two middle names, the other one is mine, John David Darwin. I wanted him to be named Darwin. <laughs> but that was, that was, that was uh, vetoed by the permanent members of the Security Council. <laughs> so, I think it'd be a cool name. But you know what kind of it is? No. Sure. <laughs> Isabel said it's more like, it's like you name your kid Einstein, would you? Yeah, fair enough, but it's still got Darwin had a cool sound to it, but it's Einstein's just weird. You know? <laughs> so, he had a lot of false starts in his career. He first, I'm going to be a doctor. No, I'm not. I'm going to be a minister. No. Then his life's work at Cambridge, um, where he met up with a couple of people who influenced him greatly, Henslow in biology and Sedgwick in geology. Um, Henslow was really good at classifying things. Had some evolutionary ideas of his own. Sedgwick um, had some ideas about geology that really influenced Darwin, though later it's interesting that Sedgwick argued vehemently against evolution. We don't realize, most people don't realize that Darwin was almost as important in geology as he is allowed.
There really isn't biology before Darwin. The first person to use the word biology in a, in a, in a written text is actually Mark. So he gets on this boat, the Beagle. It's going to explore and map South America. Now, it's not like people hadn't been to South America. There were countries there, you know. But they're going to go look at, they went, for example, to the Galapagos Islands. And I'm pretty sure Henslow actually said, he wrote the captain of the ship who was going to do the setting of this ex expedition. You know, you should take this Charles Bistis, young Darwin kid. Because he's really good at collecting species and examples of things. He collected, in fact, uh, pretty sure we get for, for Henslow a whole lot of stuff on the Galapagos Islands, a lot of these different plants. Also, when he first saw giant tortoises on the Galapagos Islands, Darwin did try to ride them. I'm just saying that's kind of funny, and you would too. <laughs> you think you got a tortoise that's like this big round, you go. And they, they're pretty docile, pleasant animal. I, I'm going to ride that. I'm going to give that a try. <laughs> Probably wouldn't do it today. Probably get in all kinds of trouble with various ethics committees, but you'd want to. So a lot, a lot of contributions to geology are the idea of looking at, well, you know, looking at evolutionary history is, of course, going to give you the idea that the world's been around a long time. And looking at different layers, strata, etc. So he makes huge contributions to the geology, and we don't seem to. He doesn't get. For a lot of people, the same recognition as he gets for the biology stuff. And for our purposes, the biology stuff's more important, of course. Um, he really supported this idea of uniformitarian. How do you always uniformitarianism? Sounds like a religion, but what it is is it says that the Earth has been. The same physical laws that have been affecting the Earth since there was an Earth. Okay? Not that things have changed, including the laws of nature. So the same forces have been acting forever. So it used to be they used to think this sort of catastrophism or something like that. Catastrophism? That there was this giant catastrophe that caused the Earth to happen. Of some sort. No one knew what it was, but it was like some huge event. And Darwin's saying, and uh, Lyle's saying, no, it, it's a gradual thing. And as we now know today, it's a pretty gradual thing, though there were, there was some giant catastrophe, too. Uh, there's probably. It's, there's some pretty good evidence today that there was an Earth and then it got hit by another small planet called, they say it's called Theia. Um, and there's a giant impact and that's where the moon, from the moon, the Earth comes off. That's the moon. It's just pretty cool. And it moves the Earth over into an orbit where it can be in the habitable zone. And look, we're all here. And yada, 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 here we are. So, of course, the contributions to biology are the big things, obviously. For our purposes, he had a huge collection of species. He would—he was better than anybody at this. He was better than anybody at collecting. You want to collect beetles? He's got more of them. You want to collect grasses? He's got more of them. He was the best. Goes to the Galapagos, gets all this stuff, comes back, thinks a bit, 
and starts putting these ideas together of, well, where do all these different things come from? So he comes home, starts thinking. He starts thinking about it on, on the vehicle, but he doesn't really get it together completely until he comes all the way home. Like when he saw the different finches, he would story about Darwin's finches and how they all had different kinds of beaks for doing, you know, opening different kinds, getting different kinds of food. That didn't come to him when he saw them. It came to him when he got home. Like I said, not the time of his visit with the finches. It was later. Okay. Richard Dawkins has said that if aliens ever do contact us, they're not going to ask us if we know about special or general relativity. They're going to say, have you discovered evolution by natural selection? That's, that's the title. Um, so the elements of the theory are there's individual variation. Uh, some of the variations are favorable. In other words, they allow you to have more offspring that will be successful. Um, that increases the chance of surviving the struggle for existence. The idea that there's a struggle for existence goes back, in fact, to, to Erasmus' art. And he wasn't the only person thinking that, too. It was evolution. People were thinking about change over time, but today we probably call it evolution, all over the sort of academic circles in the UK. Those variations are selected by nature, the, the good ones. So that's natural selection. Same way that artificial selection happens on a farm. You make two cows. You want to have ones that have a high milk yield. You get a, a female that's given a lot of milk and a bull whose mother gave a lot of milk, and then you get a cow that gives even more milk. Darwin saw this. Uh, he famously had a guy living on his estate because he was rich, uh, who, uh, one of these caretakers who raised pigeons. And, you know, there's a famous episode of him explaining to Darwin how he bred these pigeons, these prize pigeons. He's telling him exactly what, how natural selection works, if it's artificial in that case, like, yeah, well, I, I find it too fast and I, I made them. I'm trying to see. People reaction from people's reaction to this. Um, Origin of species, this book in 1858 sells out the first day, which is kind of something. First editions of books don't of academic books too. Origins is a beautifully written book, but it's an academic book. It's a it's like a textbook. And it sells out the first day. Um, there are debates at Oxford uh, between Huxley, who people call Darwin's bulldog, uh, and uh, oh, I suddenly forgot it. I literally just forgot his name. It's a funny name, too. I have to look it up. It's in I can't believe I forgot his name. Oxford Evolution. Because it's a funny name. Yes, this is Bishop Samuel Wilberforce. I told you it was a funny name. So Wilberforce and Huxley had this debate at Oxford. And now, none of this was recorded, of course. It was reported, though, that in exasperation, Wilberforce says to Huxley, and the more people with this thing than those two guys, that's who people remember. 
Well, except for me, I forget. Um, would Mr. Huxley prefer to tell me if his grandfather or grandmother was an ape? He's basically saying, well, he can't be you. We're not apes. And the story goes, and again, this probably isn't true, this argument, that Huxley leads over and says to a colleague, the Lord has delivered him into my hands. And he says, I would rather have a monkey or an ape as a relative than someone who would use their intelligence and debating skill to just personally attack somebody. So it's, it's a really pretty sick burn. It's like that thing Phil Kessel posted on Twitter. Did you hear about that? After the Americans lost the hockey game, he wasn't even invited to be on the team. And he posted, uh, sitting here alone with my dog, I think I should be doing something important. Not sure what, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. And there's nothing better than beating the Americans except beating the Russians and beating everybody else. <laughs> so this is a personalistic versus natural, naturalistic view Personalistic is the importance of the individual, but not just the individual, the importance of the human. The human is special versus the naturalistic, which is the which is part of nature. This has been a constant argument, really. Evolution, as I said, was in the air, the idea, and it gets accepted scientifically pretty quickly. At first, a lot of scientists don't like it because a lot of them are seeing that this removes the need for a designer, and it kind of it upsets them. Some of them were upset because they had this idea there was a designer. Some of them were upset because they're quite religious and think there should be a designer. But basically, everybody eventually goes, uh, yeah, but we can't come up with a better theory. And it kind of becomes like a, it's so simple, the theory of evolution and natural selection, that anyone can misunderstand it, first of all. But it's also so simple that everybody goes, ah. Oh, So Darwin's the prime mover in this. There were other people talking about these ideas. But Darwin is the, is, is the, the main guy. Okay, Darwin's psychology led to, Darwin's notion leads to this idea of functionalist or functionalism. The notion that we worry about the usefulness of something. Does it, in Darwinian terms, increase fitness? Fitness just means reproductive success. Or look at its Adaptive value. So people start looking at the adaptive value of behavior. And functionalism becomes a, a running thing in psychology in the late, 1900, late 1800s and early 1900s. It definitely led to comparative psychology, the idea of looking at different animal species and comparing how they behave. So look at continuity between species and differences. It also led to the study of individual variation by one of his uh, cousins, especially, and then others. And differences, of course. And modernly, in the modern sense, in evolutionary psychology, evolutionary psychology, the interesting thing about evolutionary psychology is that it's basically just saying psychology but that we are living things and part of the environment and part of nature, 
not something special. We're cool and very cognitively complex, but we still are animals that evolved from this planet. Evolutionary psychology soon, it seems to me, is my guess, but it started out as a, as a crazy radical new field, and now everything is just bringing in evolutionary ideas. It's gonna to get to a point where we don't have courses in evolutionary psychology anymore, it's just that all psychology has evolutionary content in it. We have an evolutionary psychology course here, but eventually, I imagine it'll just go away because all it'll be redundant. It's going to take a while for it to happen. So Darwin wrote a book in the late 1800s, "The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals." It's actually a, it's a wonderful part of that book where he talks about having seen chimpanzees look at a waterfall. And he interprets them as, as, as being in awe of it and having what he called primitive religion, which is great. So he talked about associated habits. Oh, that's good. He talked about how things operated against each other behaviorally, sort of antithesis of each other, sort of like a Hegelian invention. But what this says is that there's competition again among behaviors, among cognitive systems. And he says that things like emotion and cognition are direct actions of the nervous system. It's a very materialistic view. Darwin's a materialist. He didn't say that there's animal spirits pumping up your muscles like Descartes. Um, Spalding, biologist, basically runs with this kind of like these ideas, these evolutionary ideas. Um, and as you can see, his dates here, uh, he didn't live too long. But in his 37 years, of which probably you know only 20 of those are in his career, he started studying instinct in animals. He actually argued heavily against the empiricist view that everything is a blank slate. He actually discovers imprinting. Uh, no, never gets any credit for it. He knows he called on that. Uh, but he discovered it first day it was basically lost. He would have just forgot it. Which is a shame because he discovered something that someone else discovered years later. If there were Nobel Prizes back then, perhaps that was falling with that one. Probably too young. He talked about critical periods too. Like, this is stuff that was still thought of. So, the individual difference stuff, that's Galton. As you can see, it kind of looks like Charles Darwin. Galton was a cousin of Darwin. Um, he also did all kinds of stuff for not, not, not for psychology. He uh, looked at, he was an explorer, like he made maps all over uh, North America, traveled to the States and Canada. Um, came up with some of the first weather forecasting models, stuff that we take for granted today. Um, and he also was the pioneer using fingerprints, police using fingerprints. Like this was a, a smart man. He wanted to apply evolutionary thinking to the study of intelligence. And Darwin's his cousin. So he looks at what he called eminence rates. What's eminence? That just means, well, just remember, first of all, there's no intelligence testing yet. It comes, but not. That comes in his lifetime, but well, uh, he's retired. So, in the mid 1800s, he's like, "Well, how am I going to measure intelligence?" 
I can't. How would one do such a crazy thing? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll find out who the eminent people are. You know, lawyers, judges, doctors, MPs, lords, people like that. And then I'll see. Then I'll do a bunch of measurements of them because you'd be smart to do those jobs. I'll do measurements of them, and then I'll be able to measure intelligence. It's a clever notion. It never occurs to Dalton that some of these people got those. Sorry, some of those, those people. And he writes a book, sorry, called Hereditary Genius, where he says everything's hereditary because look, their parents were also like that. It, it's completely lost on him how the British class system works because he's a member of the upper class. Um, so Hereditary Genius, which is a book I've read actually when I was an uh, undergrad, I read it because uh, I was writing a paper on Dalton. He had surveys. He was the first guy to do this. He did twin studies. He's the first guy to do this. Stuff we gotta take for granted. So he got to the, all these things came together with this conclusion that intelligence was an error. It never occurred to Darwin that, or sorry, to Dalton, that it could have been that, you know, there's even a house of the British Parliament when the hereditary peers sat the lords and stuff. Implications of this were eugenics. The idea that we could breed better people, a better set of people, by not letting the dumb people breed and only letting the smart people breed. Very, very popular idea among really liberal people, too, by the way, for their time in the 1800s, early 1900s. Eventually, as we know from Star Trek, we need to be Gen X Wars of the 1990s. But, nobody, no Star Trek people here? Okay, <laughs> when you got it, okay, it's good. Yes, Con Union Saint shows up, something shows up, and then you get the whole Con thing, and it's great. Now, what you need, though, for all this stuff is accurate measurements. So he develops a bunch of devices for things like measuring reaction time, stuff that hadn't been done before. It's very clever. Almost all his conclusions are complete bullshit. But he developed a lot of gear. So he actually goes around with what he calls the anthropometric lab, and it's like a traveling show. He shows up in your town, and this is genius. He gets you to pay to be tested. So he actually makes money on this thing. Even though he has money, he's like, I'll measure you. That'll be 50 pence, or whatever it costs. Two shoes, I, I don't know. So a lot of these are all physical measures, almost all. Uh, sensory motor capacity. So these two, because a lot of things that we would see today in a sort of, um, Sensation and perception and stuff that we would use today, he was he invented. He related these things through what he called correlations, which in fact he invented the correlation coefficient. And almost all the statistical stuff that we use today, not almost all, a lot of it can be traced back to Galton. You can blame Galton. He then decided he wanted to study mental imagery. He got very interested in this. That so now he's looking look at what he was doing. Now he's trying to measure internal states, not just physical. Like, not like overtly physical things. And he decides that he figured he'd measure scientists and regular people and finds out that scientists don't have any mental imagery. 
And that's the croc. <laughs> Turns out people accepted this by the way for a hundred years. And scientists have no mental imagery. It's foreign to them. Or they have, a, as Galton said, a feeble level of mental imagery. Actually, it turns out he misinterpreted this data. If you go back and look at his original data, he had that idea to begin with, so it's too bad. He decided to show quite a bit of mental imagery, he just didn't realize what he was looking at. He studied associations, and he came up with a word association test as well. And he looked at the idea of the unconscious. He hinted at it anyway. That learning wasn't something that these associations didn't happen consciously, they happened unconsciously. He's kind of doing almost psychology. I think he's doing psychology, really. Seems to me. Johann Friedrich Herbach! It was obviously German, or I wouldn't have yelled his name like that. <laughs> um, he looked at education. <clears throat> And he wanted to take sort of a psychological approach to education. Um, he wanted, one of the first people one called to quantify things. Now, he was really interested in pedagogy. In fact, he probably invented the idea of, of, of studying how teaching works. Makes sense. He's German. We're in the late 1700s, well, early 1800s. More, more and more people are going to school. Let's have them learn properly. He studied what he called apperception, which is mental operations that are more complex than perception. Today we call this cognition. This is something people weren't studying a lot. And the idea was to build the apperceptive mass, in other words, to teach you how to learn, which is a very novel idea compared to just sitting in rows and repeating. As much as it is, it has some use. You can't learn everything. So you see, things are people are, the world's changing quite a bit. He also, of course, had moral education in there, so you have to teach people right and wrong. Fair enough, you've got to get the morality in there. Now, along comes vapor. Or fact, yeah, no, vapor, yeah. Did anybody, get, did anybody get the reference to the title song? The song? Did anyone get that at all? You don't know the song Psycho Killer by Talking Heads? No, you should not. Great song, Mr. Rock and Roll. Psycho Killer, as he said. Anyway, so, what do I want to teach you kids in school? Vapors in Leipzig, which is, as you probably know, eventually where Voigt is. And he's, he's interested in sensory processes, but not vision and hearing so much. He's interested in things like touch. And he starts working on two-point thresholds, which is a pretty big find when two points are touching you that feels like it's one thing touching you. You might have had a demo of that done to you uh, or in front of you in a class at some point. You can get like the tips of your fingers, you know, a couple of maybe a millimeter apart, you feel it as two things. On your back, it can be 10 centimeters feels like you can't tell if it's one or two. He comes up with what's called Faber's Law. He does weightlifting studies as well, not like that kind of weightlifting. People comparing weights, which one's heavier. And he comes up with the idea of just noticeable differences between weights. What, when, are, when do you just notice that the two weights are of different, different amounts? 
And he said they're proportional to the size of the smaller weight. So the JND divided by the smaller weight equals K, K is a constant, and that's going to be your vapor constant. You probably learned about that in school, you know, this school. So if 30 and 33 grams are different, 60 and 63 would not feel different, but 60 and 66 would. It's all proportional. Ah, Fechner. Today, a paper we're going to talk about, okay, well, uh, was is about Fechner. He starts doing what he calls psychophysics. Well, he's with psychophysics along with people like Faber. And he wants to look at the systematic analysis of it. He wants to math make it even more mathy, basically. So it's the relationship between physical stimuli and internal and perception. So it's called psychophysics. He writes a book called Elements of Psychophysics in 1860. Huh. Where he got the idea. So while we tend to say 1879 is when experimental psychology starts, because Wundt opens a psychology lab, there are people studying these things before that. In fact, there's a day called Fechner Day, October 22nd. It's coming up. Be sure to get your gifts under the Fechner tree. <laughs> <laughs> So he's looking at absolute thresholds, and different thresholds, absolute thresholds are the faintest stimulus you can feel or see or hear. And you know what different thresholds are. So he's coming up with the methods of, of, of psychophysics. And he talks about limits, the idea of, and then the other way. It's so loud that you never notice that the next one's louder, so bright you notice that the next one's brighter, etc. He's using constant stimuli here um, and changing it instead of just like a flash or something like that. And then he makes adjustments to the constant stimulus. When, when do you notice it's different? It's the, it's the, that's the approach he's taking. Start to discover a little bit about how the brain works. I got neuroscience in quotes there because, well, for two reasons. First of all, no one used that word until about 1980, or even later, maybe. Uh, also, some of this stuff is um, not entirely really well controlled. It's mostly case studies. But there's the Bill Magendi law. This is the idea that the posterior root of the spinal cord controls sensation, the anterior root controls movement. So. This is going to be a completely inaccurate diagram. There's your spinal column. So the posterior root is at the back, right? And it controls sensation. And this is movement. Okay? It's not, it, it doesn't, isn't really quite quite up like that. And if you've taken behavior with me, you know, if you've seen a really nice diagram of this.
But when you feel uh, well, nerd, right? So if you feel something, say on your, on your ring finger, right? Goes up through here, blah blah blah, all the way down to about there. And then at the posterior ring, so it's with the back part of my spinal column up to my brain. And then to move my fingers, the same goes back down through here through the same place, but the anterior root and end to move my fingers. That's the Bell Magendi law. Um, people start talking about the specific energies of nerves. What does that mean? Well, Muller talks about the idea that nerves, they didn't say neurons back then because they didn't know too much about neurons. That if a nerve's hooked up to your eye, no matter how you stimulate that nerve, you will see something. And you know this, if you push on your eye, you get a visual sensation, even though you, there's actually not a blotch in front of my eye right now. There's even my finger pushing on it, right? Or when your, ear, your ears ring. You know your ears ring? All that is, you've got through loud noise. That's the little um, hair like, the little hair cells, that's, they've been bent over from the loud noise. They're just straightening back up and you interpret that as sound. So the two parts of this idea is we don't perceive the world directly, but by actions of our nervous system. And that different nerves have different specific energies. In other words, they'll only, optic nerve can only give you sight information. Similar to one type of nerve, you get the same kind of sensation. So, photons hitting my retina, I see things. Pressure on my eye, which push pressure on most receptors, I still see things. There aren't, there are, in that case, weren't there. If you have one stimulus to different kinds of nerves, you get different sensations. So, if I was able to somehow push on my, like, well, I'm not going to, but if I push hard on my eardrum, I hear something, rather than seeing something, right? So we got guys like Muller, we got Helmholtz. How many Helmholtz? How many Helmholtz? Here I am. Do your work. Do not leave the lab before 7.30 p.m. or I will kill you. So, he may have been a very nice man, but it doesn't look like one. Um, so he looked at the speed of neural impulses. Because now they can look at a nerve. They can look at a neuron now, which is cool. They can also look at a nerve and they get the speed of the transmission. People always thought it was speed of light. Um, he knew the speed of the transmission within a nerve, within a neuron, which is about 100 meters per second, which is the speed And the speed, but then he used spinal dogs. Great movie, Spinal Dogs. That's Spinal Tap. Thank you. Um, so you take the dog and you sever the spinal column from its head, because you don't want the, any impulses from there. And then you find the nerve on the, on the uh, location of the spinal column that makes one of its legs move. You know how long the nerve is. You know 
and give you a distance equal speed times time, right? So you know how long it should take because you know the speed of transmission, and it takes way longer. So he figured out there must be some gap between neurons. He discovers the synapse through, without actually seeing the synapse, which is pretty great. So now we're looking at reaction time. We're starting to know how reaction time can work. And if you look at, for example, in the Olympics this year, well, and generally, the uh, International Amateur Athletic Federation, the one that runs all the athletics events, they've actually changed how they detect false starts. There's two ways. You can actually just see someone start running before the gun goes up. But also, they know the physical limits of human being, and you can't react any quicker than, it's about a tenth of a second. So if it's under a tenth of a second after the gun goes off, false start has to be because it's physically impossible. You must be you must have started before the gun went off. And you just disqualify. Also Helmholtz vision, oh yeah, well I did the, the, the synapse thing, I figured that out. How does vision work? He comes out with the head with one with young, with the, the, the trichromatic theory of vision. Red, green, blue, right? And we you learn about that in perception still. And whenever I teach this intro, it's like someone always says, those aren't the primary colors. Green isn't the primary color. It's made up of blue and yellow. And I say, no, it isn't. You're wrong. We're not mixing paint. We're talking about light. I don't see how it's been different. Well, yeah, I'm stupid. You're smart. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these had these neat projectors. They, well, they weren't neat. They were horrible. But they had three guns, red, green, blue. And I said, those house red, green, and blue, and that makes all these colors. And look, when I block out the red, now you know that's what, you know, snow is not a primary color. Jeez. This isn't painting. That's color subtraction. This is color addition. Will you stop it? I thought my art teacher said, this is an art class? Look at this drawing. It's clearly not art class. <laughs> It's still, as we're at the level, we still, you know, still learn this, right? It's... He also did research on hearing, which was very neat what he did. This idea of resonance. So he'd say that a different sound would have different, but each sound has different harmonics in it. Okay? And different, yeah, different harmonics. So he'd like, okay, a, a vowel of someone saying, oh, or someone say or ah. How are we going to figure out what the frequencies of that are? Well, he put <laughs> these um, brass Helmholtz resonators. They're all circular. And they got a little dimple at the end. These big brass things. And you put them in your ear. You put a dimple in your ear. And it tells you you can't touch it because you've got to sit your ear in it. And then you play the signals. But it will only resonate, because your ears all blocked there. It'll only resonate with a certain frequency. So now, you can do it now by you talking to a microphone and I just pull out a, a recording program and I can, it's easy. They didn't have free downloadable software back then. 
So they can get to invent this thing. Put them here, and it would vibrate, and if I go, ooh, and you don't hear anything? Well, let's say this was at, I don't know, whatever, how many hertz? Oh, that one isn't in the said ooh. So take another one and put it in your ear. It's pretty neat. He also figured out the different frequencies were detected by receptors in different places of the cochlea. Again, again, this is not a dumb man. Um, okay, he does look too intense. Franz Josef Gall looked at the localization of brain function. He proposed craniometry, later known as phrenology. Different, you know, big parts. Means you got more of something, means you, you got more of X, Y, or Z, little parts, the less thereof. Um, he thought he observed relationships between head shape and personality. He probably didn't. Well, he certainly didn't because there isn't one. So, so the, the basic principles of phrenology are the brain is the organ of the mind, the mind is composed of a number of faculties. I'm with you so far, actually. I'll say that's probably correct. We might say cognitive modules today. Intellectual, affective, and that's emotional sort of things, and personality. I don't know that there are actual little personality areas in the brain. In fact, I'm not certain there aren't. Each faculty is located in a specific area, and the brain doesn't work quite that way. Also, the other problem is your skull shape has no relationship to the shape of your brain. So, yeah, that's a problem. But it's a, phrenology is the first idea of brain localization. So, okay, it's wrong, but it's a different way of thinking about the mind. And like I said, your skull really doesn't reflect how much of your brain is in a certain area. There we go. So uh, what we got here? Various different faculties. Hope is right here. <coughs> so if you ever look at Barack Obama, he's got a big lump right there for hope. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of others. It's ridiculous. Right? It always reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where uh, Smithers says, uh, well, sir, uh, phonology is largely discredited. And then he, after he measures uh, the skull, he thinks the calibers and starts measuring the Smithers, and he says, of course you'd say that Smithers, you hit the brain, the head of the stagecoach different. <laughs> Problems with it. Well, it's anecdotal evidence, first of all. It's, it's easily to, to avoid falsification when you say, um, oh, well, that's a combination of faculties. There's no, that's why we missed that. Too much hope and not enough uh, thinking leads to obviously what you are. That's why we use it. It's like it's like psychoanalysis. It's really popular in the states. Uh, it's consistent with American values in a lot of respects because it's there are inborn things about people about their brains, and anybody can do anything. Right? It's like maybe you're not in the sort of money class right now. But you're smart. Anybody can be present. That kind of thing. 
Also, everybody's different, everybody's unique. It's not that we have people in distinct class groups. Well, there are distinct class groups, the national myth kind of thing, right? Uh, it was even applied a little bit. Um, doctors would use it. Yeah, obviously, incorrectly. Well, they can't use it correctly, it's wrong. Okay, Phineas Gage. We all know about Phineas Gage. I won't go too much into Phineas Gage. There he is, after his tamping rod went through his eye. Well, actually, through his eye, went through his, uh, wrong side, yeah, the right side. Through here, straight up, and at his head. And the tamping rod is, right, that's when you put the, uh, what do you call it, like a powder in a hole, and you're going to blow something up. Because he was working on the railroad, and it exploded. Well, so it shot this uh, like two foot rod right through his head. So he got some really serious brain damage, and it changed his behavior. In uh, it's, it's mostly now he went from being Mr. Nice Guy, and he, to being a guy that couldn't control his emotions. So he started to act like the Swede on. Um, Hell on Wheels. Kind of looked like it too. You watch Hell on Wheels. But, so this is part of It's probably the case that some personality stuff and some emotional control stuff is there. It's also the case that I would be generally pissed off if things had gone through my head. You know, so you'd say the thing in the stage. Because it used to be, the story always was on the railroad building company he worked on was, this is great, you want to get on a crew, get on Gage's crew, and then that thing happened, then it's like, don't get on Gage's crew. And then you'd hear that, and you'd go, well, that's not very nice, you're a bunch of jerks, you're all fired. But I mean, wouldn't you act like that? Oh, don't get on my crew, yeah, it must be horrible to get on my crew. Ever have a rod go through your head? I really feel for you. Ooh. You ever ride with your head? So I'm going to pissed off too. <laughs> so I'm always not, that's the change of the paper, right? No, there was some guy. It's like, get back to work, Gage. Okay. Please take this rod out of my face. I'd be pissed off too. So. Okay. Paul Broca. Uh, Broca was French, I think. Um, had this he's a physician had the, the case of a person named that he called Tan because the person could only say Tan. Person also had some behavioral or emotional problems. Um, he did an autopsy of this person and it was brain damage in what we today call Broca's area. So it's for production of language, as you know. Questions about any of this stuff today? Okay, so some conclusions. Um, the importance of evolutionary thinking is really important in psychology. And I, part of that, I wouldn't say that Darwin publishing is what leads to psychology, because it's kind of crazy to say that. But Darwin does use the word psychology in his writing, and Darwin also um, inspired some people to look at humans as nat naturalistic beings, as things from nature, not things separate from nature. Um, now, part of the fact that 
Darwin rises and psychology rises, and that's in the 19th century, but it shouldn't surprise you uh, because intellectual life was moving very quickly. So that part of that's correlation, not causation. But never underestimate the importance of evolutionary thinking in psychology, and it's getting more and more again. Notice how today it's not philosophy anymore. No one's like, oh yeah, but there's this thing about, uh, I was thinking about this, and it's pretty obvious it's a blank slate. That's my John Locke impression, just a dumb guy. Um, people were using biological ideas, even if they were wrong. That's what's now inspiring these notions of psychology. Right. Questions, comments, criticisms, kudos, anything else that starts to cut sound? That's stuff we talked about today before we talk about that effective thing. You good? Yeah, go ahead. I, um, I was reading a recent article and uh, talked about there's some thoughts in the field that moving away from like, um, evolutionary psychology, for example, gradual changes over time. Mm-hmm. And it was this paper on traditional environmentalism versus this new theory of resilience mm-hmm. that's based off of thresholds as opposed to gradual changes over time. Okay. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Okay. Like they talk about the example of like um, the traditional environmentalism thinks about you have like this pool of water and let's say you have this factory and you're pouring polluted water into this pool, right? Mm-hmm. So it'll say, okay, gradually it becomes murkier and murkier and murkier yes. and more polluted. But resilience theory says that, okay, you can have this um, factory putting dirty water into this pond, but until it reaches a threshold, it won't change. Mm-hmm. When it reaches this threshold, then overnight you see like this, um, you know, it's a polluted pond. Right. And it's being applied to like a lot of uh, biological and psychological theories as well. It's I mean, interesting. I think that that may be somewhat misunderstanding. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not used to talking this much. Um, it may be misunderstanding evolutionary ideas a little bit, though, because things can change very quickly. Salt and pepper moth is, is the classic example of something that goes within about a three or four year period from being a speckled moth to being completely black because of all the soot in the air in, in, in England in the seven, late 1700s or late 1800s. So, I mean, I don't know if that's at, at odds with it. Um, I think evolutionary theory in clinical stuff, counseling stuff, that's where it's going to take the longest time to be because a lot of that stuff's hard. People don't tend to... People are concerned with what works. And they are with a lot of... Which is fine. I mean, that's good. I, I, I did therapy and I don't care how the hell what the theory behind it was. It worked. I don't put my fist through walls anymore. That's a good thing. So I don't know if it, the water was murky or not, but I don't put my fist through walls anymore. So... By the way, yeah, this, the, the, the me you guys know, this is the non-angry me. I'm a real peach to live with. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that slowly though, and in spurts it's going to happen too, we're going to get more movement. But yeah, uh, you know, uh, there, there is some resistance to it. Yeah, And also, not everything has to be thought out, every single problem from an evolutionary angle. It's more of an overarching thing, right? Good question. Good, good, uh, good thing. Anything else? Right, well, I sure don't want to ask you twice. And I don't want to be so nice. Yeah, I got a cat. I kill the mice. Did you say you want to see? See
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>